0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to to be here. I look forward to getting to know as many of you as is possible uh, and uh, as many of you who are interested in getting to know me uh, and meeting me and talking together in the next few days. Um, I'm uh, delighted to see that you're in uncomfortable plastic seats. It's one of the uh, greatest worries of being the afternoon after lunch after the other speaker speaker. That you'll all be very very drowsy, um, and so I, I I can testify these seats are even less comfortable than Delta seats, uh, having just been in one of those. So this this will this will serve you well uh, in the next hour. It's one of my policies uh, whenever I'm speaking somewhere when where Ian Hamilton is present, not to look at him, um, and I'll be. Following that policy carefully this afternoon, um I had the pleasure of being Ian Hamilton's associate minister for a couple of years in Cambridge. Um I I think he is the most encouraging colleague I've ever had and perhaps could have. Uh he would uh always find something interesting or useful to say after each sermon. Um uh, unlike any other senior minister that I know, although he didn't call himself a senior minister, uh, he would let me preach in the mornings a lot uh, due to the uh, exigencies of a growing family and an increasingly unfavorable parent-to-child ratio. Uh, it just helped the the rhythms of our family for me to be preaching in the, the morning more than the afternoon. But But the one thing about Ian, when you and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, whoever else is speaking will notice this for the rest of the week. Um, he, he always looks as though he's, uh, he's some kind of Celtic chieftain who has just received news of an invasion on his shores. Um, so so, so he, he listens intently and he furrows his brow. I call it the, the Celtic chieftain look. And it's by no means encouraging for the preacher. So... I I look to his left, I look to his right, I look above, I look below, but I don't look at him. So those of you who are seated near Ian, I won't look at you once uh, in, in the next hour. Okay. So, with that out of the way. The Westminster Confession of Faith's chapter on Christ the Mediator opens with an announcement. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man. The person of Christ, as the opening line of this chapter and as the title of this chapter both advertise, was not considered abstractly by the Westminster Assembly, having explained in chapter 2 that... Uh, the son with the father and the spirit is divine fully divine the confessions further consideration of god the son are absorbed with the task of understanding god the son as mediator god that the son uh, the son is the one who's between uh, god and man now it's one of the great uh, wonders of the incarnation and our salvation that the majestic and only begotten of the Father could humble himself and become a man. And the Westminster Assembly gets to that that topic without undue delay. But it's another glory of Christ that at the uh, instant of his incarnation, he formally took to himself new titles as our mediator, which give God's people even more scope for praise than we might have imagined or expected. And this is where chapter 8 begins. So in considering Christ as mediator, the assembly considers uh, the majesty of his titles before it turns to the mystery of the incarnation. Now in being told about these titles, we're being taught That Jesus Christ was promoted as a prophet greater than Moses himself. He was declared to be an eternal high priest who would offer up one sacrifice to do away with all of our sin for all time. He was established as a king of Zion, a kingdom that shall never end. And as prophet, he's our teacher, as our priest, he's our our mediator and only hope. As king, he's our defender and ruler. All of these titles Christ takes to himself at the moment of his incarnation. And yet, the Son of God is not only a a savior, as if that were a small thing. No, as our prophet and and priest and king, uh, Christ is also the head of the church, This threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, together with his headship over the church, has vast implications uh, for the way in which we consider his church, uh, for the way in which we conduct ourselves as ministers or elders uh, in his church. Plainly, it ought to shape the way in which we think and and speak of it, how we order it, how we serve in it, how we worship in it. Because if this is who he is, if this is his church, then we must seek diligently his will in all that we do. Now, this is obviously one of the convictions that, that shapes and informs the Twin Lakes Fellowship. This is one of the things that we, we care a great deal about and it ought to uh, inform the work of our congregations and of our, of, and of our presbyteries. But even this, of course, is, is just, just the beginning, just the beginning of our Savior's perfections. And uh, we cannot possibly uh, think that we can catalog them all. This is God's son after all. And in him, uh, God is delighted in him. God is well pleased. He appointed him heir of all things, we're told, heir of all the worlds that he once made and, and still loves as only God can. With the son as the, as the heir of all things, the son as the head of the church, the son as the, the prophet, priest, and king, the mediator between God and man, we find great comfort um, as, as Christian people. We find a great deal of material to preach, and we find no right to be afraid of death and judgment, and can assure others of the same. It's it's a glorious thing to consider Christ as our mediator, and to reflect upon his titles together. We have every reason for confidence. Uh, We can be sure that the that the Lord will judge the world in righteousness. Uh, And we can be sure of that because he's ordained his son to be our judge. Uh, In John 3.16, Jesus speaks of himself as the son who's given to all who believe. Uh, And so in addition to being all the other things that we've mentioned and uh, the judge of the world, he's also the gift to the world. Well, we could go on a long time with the titles of Christ. The Westminster Confession only mentions a few. But if the first paragraph wants to introduce us to the one who's the mediator between God and man and wants to give us just a sampling of the titles that are his, the second paragraph informs us that this mediator is himself, both God and man. This is the clear teaching of the word of God. It'll come as no surprise to any of you. It's this mediator whom we meet in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There we see uh, the Son of God, the the second person of the Trinity, is very God, for John says he's God. There, too, we see that he's eternal God. John says this is true from the beginning, whatever the beginning can mean uh, when we're speaking about God. And elsewhere, John says that Jesus is the true God, that he's eternal life, that he, is, that he is this life for us because eternal life abides in him. Well, much more could be said, for example, since the Son is God as much as the Father is God, or, or for that matter, the Holy Spirit, it's, an, it's almost an understatement to note that they are of one substance or to say that they are equal as Paul does in his letter uh, to the Philippians, as the confession does here. But the main point is that we should never cease to marvel that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, that he sent forth this glorious son. It's hard to even grasp the edges of this almost incredible fact that this same word that was with God from the beginning, that this is the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. And who can can fail to, to hear John's humble amazement as he tells the world what he and his fellow disciples saw? We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. John is... Amazed. He is astonished at the glory of the person of the Son. Now, in considering God's eternal plan to send His his Son, the, the Westminster Assembly puts before us the great contradiction of the incarnation. You know, humility for us is just a discovery of our proper place. Humility in the Son of God. Is not nearly so simple. In recent years, we've seen, or perhaps you've heard, of an unfortunate Christological error that's that surpassed from pastor to pastor, especially in Indonesia in China. and China. And at its root is a misunderstanding of this very point. The concern of its promoters is to display the glory of the divine person of Christ. But the way in which they're going about it is to subvert Christ's humiliation, to make his humanity a species of superhuman and thus the unhuman. So anxious are they to make sure that Christ is glorified and exalted as he should be. Of course, this is just a new variation on an older era. And the Westminster Assembly, and like the Westminster Assembly, we have, we have no need to go there in order to magnify the name of Jesus. If only we have eyes to see it, Christ's humility actually emphasizes his true authority. This is what I mean by the contradiction of the Incarnation. You see, a fraud, a a usurper, a tyrant is afraid to take off his royal robes and to set aside his dignities because he is a usurper, because he is in reality as low in authority as the person next to him. Every time I read the Washington Post, I am reminded of what dictators almost always wear. When they appear in public, and you, you see them on the front page. It's a military uniform, badges and all, and as many badges as possible. And they dare not appear in public without these accoutrements. They dare not cast things, these things off because the fraud clings to any evidence or display of power that he can find. But do you see the point? Our Lord lays aside his tokens of power and authority without fear. He doesn't need his royal robes, as it were, for he is equal with God. He doesn't need to grasp at the honors of heaven, which are his by right. We do not detract from the glory of the Son by emphasizing his true humanity in the incarnation. If the incarnation could detract from the glory of God, it would have never taken place. It would never have pleased God in his eternal purpose to appoint his son as mediator if it would not also magnify the glory of Christ's person. The real humanity of this incarnated or enfleshed God is revealed in in many places in the Bible, and you'll know these places well certainly this includes the epistle to the Hebrews. This mediator did not take the form of angels, we're told. No, he was made like his brothers in every way. To the extent that we are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, Hebrews 2 tells us. He took a human nature, but not a fallen nature. He took our nature without the sin of our nature. Sin assaulted But did not conquer his mind or body. As the writer to the Hebrews notes, our mediator is not one who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. On the contrary, we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are and yet was without sin. You see, Jesus would bear our sin. But it would always be our burden that he carried, not his own. We must never forget that a chasm of difference exists between being tempted and falling to temptation now the sheer extent of human wonder at the incarnation can almost make us forget sometimes that this really is a part of human history but history it is and we can see it simply but eloquently narrated for us by historian luke in the first chapter of his gospel there we're told how an angel revealed to mary that she would conceive a child by the power of the holy spirit while still a virgin he would be called a son of god at the same time this child really would be hers often the great creeds of the church have stressed that that the son of god was of the same substance as the father By that, clear-headed theologians mean that Jesus is really divine. Here, the confession helpfully reminds us that he is also of Mary's substance. By that, these theologians mean that Jesus is really human and really lived in space and time. And yet, how are we to understand the, the divinity and the humanity of Christ? How do they relate in the one person that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth? I think we need to remember the words of the angel. The one to be born will be called the Son of God. Or to put it differently, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Or as Paul puts the mystery to the Roman Christians, we can trace a human ancestry of Christ and at the same time and in the same breath, We remember that he is God over all. The Bible keeps doing this, doesn't it? It constantly refers to the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures. There's there's the Godhead, or deity, and there's the manhood, or humanity. Jesus was truly human. Humans are able to die. Christ died for our sins. Yet this is really God who's manifest in the flesh. Again, a real man was justified in the spirit and seen of angels. A real God was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. These two were inseparably joined together in one person. The confession helpfully reminds us there's no conversion of natures here. The divinity was not lost in humanity or humanity in divinity. There's no composition, the, the incarnation doesn't result in, in some new hybrid, some, some new creature that's not quite God or not quite man. In fact, there's, there's no confusion between the human nature and the divine nature at all. What we must believe, what we glory and delight in believing, is that there's one person who's very God and very man, He's our one Christ. And we can say with Paul that God's son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, truly was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and truly was declared to be the son of God with power. This is our Messiah. He's the one that we celebrate, whose glory we delight in. And so we trust in his salvation. We pray in his name. We confess with all Christians through the ages who he is, one God. One mediator between God and man. Well, the other side, and there is another side, the, the other side of the work of the mediator is that of a surety, as the confession puts it. Now, we distinguish between these two, but we can't separate them. A surety. Is a person who undertakes some specific responsibility on behalf of someone else. The surety is the guarantee, the the person who makes himself liable for the default, for the miscarriage of another, no matter what the cost. Jesus was the surety, the guarantee of the covenant the covenant that's discussed in a previous chapter of the confession. And he knew what the cost would be of serving as a guarantee because he knew we're perpetual covenant breakers. You see, no matter how great the blessing, no matter how sweet the promise, men and women will not and cannot keep covenants as Adam and Eve showed clearly when they broke the first covenant made in the garden of Eden so what a task our lord took upon himself one cannot be a mediator unless there's some basis on which to mediate Christ could be the mediator of a new covenant that speaks better things as Hebrews 12 says only only if he became the guarantee Or the surety of that better covenant, as Hebrews 7 says. And yet, in his grace and mercy, with his eyes wide open, as it were, Christ accepted that office. Incredibly, incredibly, the Son of God considered it an honor to do so. No man takes this honor, this glory to himself, scripture tells us. He awaits the call of God. As Hebrews 5 explains. And that call came. Our Lord was called by his Father to be our mediator. Our Lord was given by the Father all that he needed for the task. And the confession mentions and and discusses how he was given the Holy Spirit without measure. For his work was appallingly arduous. His suffering would be unspeakably great. However, it would be a mistake to think of our mediator only in his weakness, wouldn't it? And not in his strength. Our mediator is also one who who is given all power. And to him is committed all judgment, as we alluded to earlier. He died but did not remain dead. He's risen. He's ascended to the heavens. As Peter explained to that great, guilty, quiet crowd at Pentecost 2,000 years ago, That same Jesus who once was crucified has been made by God, both Lord and Christ. It's through this risen and ascended mediator that we worship our God. Of course, every paragraph of chapter 8 bears on this matter before us, bears on the person and the glory of Christ. But a treatment of the assembly's Christology would hardly be complete if if we didn't comment on chapter I mean on paragraph seven. The seventh paragraph harkens back to the second, which explains that God took this God the Son took to Himself a human nature, and by doing so became a person with two natures, the divine and the human. It also picks up on a thread in the third paragraph which tells us how Christ the Mediator was enabled to fulfill his task because he was filled with the Spirit. Subsequent sections explain what the work of the Mediator was until we arrive here at this seventh paragraph, which adds more depth to the discussion of the person and natures of Christ. Here in the first place, we're reminded again that it's Christ who acted in the work of mediation, Christ who's both God and man. It's important to understand, and the confession states this here that it's not the human nature of Christ that saves us, nor is it the divine nature of Christ that saves us. No, it's Christ Himself acting according to both natures who is our Savior and deliverer. In other words, it's a person who saves us, not a nature. The Confession aims to stress this point when it tells us that each nature of Christ was was doing that which is proper to itself. Now, now in one sense, this is inevitably an imprecise manner of speaking. For for natures don't do anything apart from a person. As Hebrews 9 tells us, it it was Christ's blood that purges us from a guilty conscience. Or as 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, it was Christ who suffered. A great number of verses in the the Bible say the same thing, and they, they refer to the work of Christ, who is, of course, a whole person. And yet, while we must keep the person of Christ in view, the two natures of Christ must never be forgotten. Hebrews 9 tells us that it was blood that was needed to save us. First Peter 3 reminds us that suffering was required for our salvation. This blood and suffering were Christ, but they were Christ because the eternal Son of God became man, an embodied man with a human nature that could suffer. It's important to remember that Christ is forevermore one person with two natures and that he remains as a whole person our mediator. Sometimes Reformed theologians, sometimes Reformed ministers don't say this well. Uh, sometimes we, we speak as, as, as though uh, we're saved by one nature in the, uh, or the other. The, the confession here helpfully puts before us the whole Christ. I say we need to remember this, but who can fully understand this? This is as great a mystery as the doctrine of the Trinity... There's no one like Christ. There's no true analogy to the incarnation as there is no good analogy for the Trinity. Now, this is never easy to understand, or at least it hasn't been easy for theologians to understand thus far in the history of the church. But one thing about which we need to be clear is how the two natures of Christ relate to his person. This, too, is part of the glory of who Christ is. What's important to see is that that what's true of either nature of Christ is also always true of the person of Christ. This is usually called the communication of attributes, or the communicatio idiomatum. That is, whatever can be said of the humanity of Christ can be said of his person. Whatever can be said of the divinity of Christ can be said of his person. However, we must not think that what can be said of one nature is true of the other nature. For example, Christ's human nature did not exist from all eternity. And the divine nature of Christ could never die. The teaching of the communication of attributes, of the attributes of Christ's natures to his person, is, is assumed when the Westminster divines say, what is proper to one nature is attributed to the person. Although the divines will also acknowledge at the end of paragraph 7 that sometimes in Scripture there's an occasional cross-fertilization of language that that complicates this. But this is the reality that Scripture emphasizes. Now I think by now I've mentioned a few things that probably don't work their way into even evening sermons. And... (laughs) Even evening sermons of ministers who attend the Twin Lakes Fellowship. And yet we should all at least be able to outline in complete sentences the finer point of Christology. Uh, Even if we cannot explain, we should at least clearly confess what scripture teaches us about the person of Christ. The hypostatic union is foundational for our faith, and essential for our salvation. Now, all the Westminster divines would agree with what I've said thus far. In fact, I'm just doing my best to paraphrase and explain what they teach in the confession. A subset of them would agree with what I'm about to say next by way of application. No preacher should think that he is preaching Christ as Christ intends to be preached when he is merely discussing Christology. And no preacher should think that he honors Christ in preaching as Christ intends to be honored without discussing Christology. The Westminster Divines believe that Christ should be preached and should be preached from the whole of the Scriptures. And that preaching Christ entailed preaching him as mediator, preaching Christ and his benefits. For the members of the Westminster Assembly, preaching the Bible and preaching Jesus Christ were never mutually exclusive concepts. Quite to the contrary. After all, Christ cannot be preached from anything but the Bible. As Thomas Ford once commented, I am not able to apprehend how how God's works of creation, as sun, moon, and stars, and so on, did preach Christ to people. It's scripture not the created world that is the textbook for preaching Christ, by which Ford and others meant Christ as mediator in his redemptive work. What's more, the focal point of the Bible itself is the Messiah. And therefore, proper exegesis demanded a Christ-focused hermeneutic, which in turn required Christ-centered preaching. Thus, Antony Burgess, another assembly member, argues that it's the main end and scope of the scriptures only to exalt Christ, and the end of the ministry should be the same with the end of scriptures. Consistent with this emphasis and and following his exhortations to preach the whole word of God, Antony Burgess expounded the next verse in 1 Corinthians 3 in a Christological fashion. For other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Burgess had a lot to say about preaching Christ, the church's one foundation. Christ is the only foundation, he says, in respect of knowledge and instruction. Moving from epistemology to ethics, he argued, We must preach Christ the foundation of all strength and power, from whom we receive all ability to do anything that is good. The same applies for ecclesiology and kingdom theology, as Christ is the head of the church and governs all things. Furthermore, Christ is to be set up as the only foundation in respect of mediation and intercession with God. Our persons and duties are accepted only through him. No inheritance or blessing comes without his imputed righteousness. And Burgess is just getting started. Christ is to be preached as the foundation of all fullness, for all our necessities and spiritual wants. Christ is the foundation of all happiness, joy, and spiritual content the godly hearer can have. We're to preach Christ as the center in whom all the lines of your hope, love, and desire are to meet. Thus, Paul himself, I determined to know nothing but Christ crucified. Christ is the one whom we are to expect to meet in the sacraments and Prayer and the preaching of the word. And lastly, he adds, we are to preach Christ not only as the foundation of our approaches to God, but of all God's gracious actions and visitations to us. By that, Burgess means that we are not only to come to God in Christ's name, but to expect that God will come to us through Christ. For God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, of course, some might uh, wish to qualify just how Christ is reconciling the world when not everyone would be saved. Uh, The gospel offer needed to be extended with appropriate sensitivity to reform biblical theology and scriptural teaching on the extent of the atonement. Nonetheless, preaching also needed to reflect the encouraging tenor of the gospel as Burgess puts it. Echoing similar sentiments, Obadiah Sedgwick states that it's but labor lost to set up anything but Christ. Ministers are to be much in preaching Christ. Again, your labors in preaching will come to little, perhaps to nothing, if it not be Christ or something in reference to Christ on which you so so laboriously insist in preaching. My kingdom, says Christ, is not of this world. So your business is not the business of the world. Go then and preach the kingdom of God. Preaching Christ as mediator, Sedgwick outlines, is the preacher's proper work, sufficient and full work, honorable work, excellent work, and true comfort. The parish preacher must be able to know on the judgment day that he has preached Christ. The missionary preacher also has the weight of this responsibility on his conscience. Thomas Thorogood added, uh, Thomas Thorogood having uh, Native American hearers in mind, said it was the task of the pastor to try and enlarge the hearts of the hearers to receive uh, to receive those who who preach Christ to them. And, of course, those needing sermons for their salvation were not only in in faraway lands, uh, lost Scottish and English, and we might add American and other congregations also need to hear Christ preach, Christ preached, for even unbelievers needed to be under a pastor's care till they be first converted. Now, to be honest, a, a sense of obligation to preach Christ varied uh, between members of the assembly. Uh, Philippe Delmay's textbook on preaching mentions Christ only in passing. Oliver Bowles gives it a chapter in his pastoral theology. Edward Reynolds gives it a treatise. In fact, Reynolds pursues the necessity of preaching from, from what looks like every angle. The origin of his little book is an extended sermon on Paul's comment to the Corinthians that he and his fellow preachers preach not Christ, I preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. And in tune with his text, Reynolds explains in some detail that ministers are not to preach themselves, and he offers a few examples of how we so easily and sometimes accidentally do end up preaching ourselves. And then he goes on to argue that Christ is the author, the object, and the end of all preaching. As the author, Christ is the one who sends a preacher on his mission, calling him internally and externally to the pulpit ministry. Christ separates the preacher from other Christian persons, consecrating them for the work that they're given. He's the king, and so he gives his ambassadors instructions, chiefly. The task to be agents of reconciliation in Christ's place. As the object, Christ is the matter and the message of all of our preaching. The law drives us to Christ. The gospel itself resides in Christ as can be seen in every article of the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the Father of Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit of Christ. We believe in the Holy Catholic Bride of Christ. We believe in communion with the subjects of the King, Christ Jesus. And, of course, we we preach remission of sins through Christ alone, through his resurrection. Just as the law and the gospel find their focus and substance in Christ, so, too, do all prayers and both sacraments. And then, as the end of all preaching... The preacher does all that he can for one purpose and towards one goal. He does everything to advance the interests and the plans of Christ, the people of Christ, and ultimately the glory of Christ. On more than one occasion, Jeremiah Burroughs indicates that preaching in his day was getting moralistic in tone. A mere preaching against the vanities and prophets of this world is not really the main thing, nor the right method of preaching, he argues. Elsewhere, he complains that it's common now to preach morality, how things have changed. Of course, morality is within the sphere of preaching, but it's not a replacement for the gospel. The great point that all ministers ought to aim at is the great point of reconciliation. And that is to be preached, says Burroughs. Thomas Goodwin concurred, alluding to Romans 10, verse 15. He he submits that preachers would add more beauty to their own feet if they would increase their gospel preaching and decrease their discussions of what he calls truths of less moment. And Cornelius Burgess would note... Just before the restoration of Charles II to his throne, that bishops could add some credibility to their pomp and perpetual state of honor and dignity above their brethren if they would occasionally preach Christ to his flock. Quenching all zeal in preaching Christ, Thomas Wilson told a gathering of the House of Commons, is as great a sin in England as it was in the days of the high priest and his accomplices who opposed Jesus and his disciples. Nothing is more important than preaching Christ. And Stephen Marshall, and for Stephen Marshall, all divisions and subdivisions in other matters of religion are secondary in comparison. You see, what the assembly members realized is that they must always speak about Christ in their sermons because preachers are his ambassadors and not another's. Christ came into the world saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. He said he was the bread of life that came down from heaven. In other words, he preached himself as the good news that the world needed. His ambassadors are, of course, given the same commission. These were the keynotes that Burgess struck in his address on the subject. And this is no new thing. He emphasizes, all the prophets were prophets of Christ. All the officers in the New Testament are officers of Christ. Burroughs also highlights the fact that it's not only the main task of the preachers to preach gospel reconciliation, but that it is their commission to preach that especially. It's little wonder then that after studying John 1, verses 6 to 9, that John Aerosmith found his ideal model in John the Baptist, the last prophet of the old era, whom the apostle John commends as one who bore witness to the light, always emphasizing that Christ must increase while he must decrease. True ministers, Aerosmith writes, set up Christ in their ministry, They are content themselves to stand in the crowd and to lift up Christ upon their shoulders, content not to be seen themselves, so Christ be exalted. If I've made that point at length, my other point I'll state briefly. In discussing the person of Christ, the assembly decided to present Christ for us and not simply Christ in himself. Christ and the economy of salvation, and not Christ and the ontology of God. Our preaching is incomplete without that dimension in our preaching. But if no preacher should think that he is preaching Christ when he's merely explaining Christology, it is also the case that no preacher should think that he honors Christ and preaching without Christology. Surely we want to love Christ for who he is. And not simply for what he does. Surely the, the wonder of the person of Christ ought to be heard in the, in the words of our mouths. And felt in the meditation of our, of, of our hearts. Surely this is acceptable, even desirable in God's sight to be able to speak about our savior in such a way that our people will honor him and love him for himself. This is one of the great aspirations of our ministries. This is what we long to do and to do well. I have always felt a great debt of gratitude to any member of the church or minister of the church whether in sermon or conversation, who can leave me in awe before the Lord for who he is. What a blessing it is to have fellowship sometimes. And many of you will, will, be, will have experienced this yourselves. What a blessing it is to have fellowship with someone who knows Christ who's eager to to share what he's heard or seen in the one who is with the Father, who has some sense of the delight that John has in his first letter to the churches. What a joy it is to be with someone who's been reading their Bibles and has so much to admire about the glory of Christ's person that they can startle themselves in mid-sentence As as if they had momentarily forgotten something they could never forget. And say with a double delight, oh, and then there's also the glory of Christ's work. May our sovereign and gracious Father, by by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to be that kind of a Christian. That kind of a preacher. Thank you. I can't see the clock that far away. I, I don't know if I'm 20 minutes over, if I have 15 minutes left. What should I should I stop? Should we take questions? Some questions. OK. Anyone have any questions, comments or statements of overwhelming brilliance? <laughs> yes, sir.: uh,
1: What would you say the to uh Mr? Say about the manner in which the divine nature of Christ participates in his suffering.
0: What would the Westminster Divines say about the manner in which the divine nature of Christ participates in his suffering? First of all, they would um, let, let, let me back up. Um, I, I think it's fairly common for ref, post-Reformation reformed divines to, uh, to discuss separately um, the, 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 the interplay, if you will, and that's crass and I'm not sure how to get around that. Of the human nature or the divine nature in the sufferings of Christ, um, so you're asking a, a, a good question, and and many of them would be uh, would be comfortable discussing this. Um, I think that most uh, although although many would be comfortable having that discussion, I think Anthony Burgess probably has a a discussion um, in um, in his true doctrine of justification i think I think it's more helpful to consider the I'm, 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 I'm wobbling here. What it, what, this is what I want to say. Let me just say what I want to say and see how it comes out. Because um, <laughs> it's really not what you want to do when you're discussing Christology. Um, um, I, want, I, I wish I could redirect the question to say we should always think about the person of Christ and not one nature or the other. But they will say this, that if, if Christ were not a divine person, there would be no value, no weight or merit to the sufferings of Christ, so the divine nature of Christ imbues the person of Christ with the, with, with, with the value, with the worth that makes the suffering most evident in the human nature of Christ uh, effective. I, I think I lost, I think that was a whole sentence. I, I, I think I lost the beginning by the time I got to the end. Um, where they're squeamish is, is with what the Lutherans want to do. Uh, the Lutherans will, are, are, are comfortable, much more comfortable than the Reformed, in speaking about the sufferings of the divine nature. Um, and, um, and, of course, they're even, they're even more comfortable in, in, in speaking about um, uh, characteristics and attributes of the divine nature uh, be, being seen in the human. Uh, that That's a long answer. I don't feel it's particularly helpful. So you should feel free to ask a follow-up question and then I can ask Ian Hamilton answer it. <laughs> is, is there a question behind the question? Or, or am I... Or, go ahead and give it a second round if you want. And I'll see if it's worth me giving a second round. Chapter 2 says that
1: God is without parts of passions. And then you uh, quoted the section attributes and said it shouldn't contribute to one nature that which is true of the other nature Uh, and yet the whole person of Christ suffers so I understand how Christ suffers in his human nature, I'm just wondering how to express how the divine nature participates in that suffering without violating what's already been said in chapter 2
0: Right, so so I I would not relate the comment in chapter two about about God having no parts. I think that's an assertion of divine simplicity. I don't think that's a comment on the hypostatic union at all. So, so, so I would not actually put those two in the in the same discussion. Um, but that's not
1: the way I was relating.
0: Okay, okay. 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 H- help me here. The
1: son of God is without hearts or passions?
0: Uh, the son of- I see, I see. So so Christ's divine nature without passions. Is is that is that what you're thinking about? Yes. And and yet it's one of the mysteries of the incarnation that the Son of God in the person of Christ does suffer on the cross. How to articulate that well? Is, is, is something I'm not sure I'm able to do um, without getting into all kinds of trouble. Um, yeah, That's, so that is an unhelpful answer. I can confirm that now. I, I find myself able to, with the use of Scripture, to make distinctions. And to say what 's true of the person of Christ, but I find it very difficult with the authority of scripture behind me to answer that question i I just find myself bumping up against what i don 't know I need better peripheral vision. I could have solved my agony a long time ago, yeah oh, a different question, not a all right. Do, all right, so, so that's, that's my answer. My answer is I bump up against the boundaries of what I can say with any confidence, and so I back off at that point. Um, yeah, Rick Phillips.
2: Uh, we've recently had a controversy over the eternal functional subordination of the sun. Yes. Uh, I noticed one, that. One of them. <laughs> between the ontology of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. It seemed to me that one of the mistakes being done is texts that were in the context of Christ's incarnation were being applied his eternal, well, either ontological <coughs> or economical state. I thought you spoke very uh, very pointedly about the humiliation of Christ and both were excellent remarks. Could you comment on Maybe things that we've learned from this controversy, and I particularly have in mind of differentiating the incarnation of Christ from his eternal being and relationships.
0: So, so I think that your question contained a point that really doesn't require a lot of amplification, either in terms of volume, everyone could hear you, or in terms of clarity. Um, so it, it, it does seem to me – I don't think I have any – I don't have a corner on this, um, so I don't think I'll, I have anything particularly useful to say. Um, but it, it, it does seem to me that, um, that we need to very clearly distinguish the humiliation and obedience of Christ as our mediator um, – and we need to remember the uh, the the exaltation of Christ uh, as as our mediator and one of my concerns with the ongoing conversation about some kind of eternal subordination is it seems to lose sight of the fact that the humiliation of Christ is a is as it were a, a bracketed moment in can we speak like this in the life of the Son of God? Um there is there is an order to the Trinity. The words Father and Son mean something and mean something significant. But It's very unhelpful to speak about that in terms of eternal subordination. And when one begins to look for precedents in church history to baptize this idea, they tend not to be good ones. Um, So efforts to defend a legacy of subordinationist or or, uh, somewhat subordinationist language... Um, tends to be uh, an unhelpful approach on the part of the church going back to the second or third century to deal with modalism. So in order to demonstrate that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit really are different, the early church uh, uh, often emphasized too great a difference between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That is not a helpful approach Precedent. We, we shouldn't actually want to go back to that in order to, uh, in some way, validate a, a, a current fad in Christology. Um, one more thought, but it's slipping from my mind, which may be a good thing. Um, what was it? Well, it's gone. Uh, yes, yes. Jason.
1: I'm wondering, uh, in the discussions about the seventh chapter of Christ, were there any, in the debates at the Westminster Assembly, when they were debating that seventh chapter, uh, they didn't use the Chalcedonian language of the Was there discussion of that at all in the debate there at the Assembly?
0: So, um, the Assembly... Discusses the doctrine of the Trinity in seven different documents. Um, on each of those occasions, some aspect of this question comes up in one way or another. We don't have a very thorough access to those debates. By the time we get around to the most substantive Trinitarian debates, the scribe who at one point writes 20 pages a day and tells you, who's saying what at every moment, does things like, you know, debate of the doctrine of God today. Um, <laughs> he's just tired. We we do there are a few access points to their writings on the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, there's a committee report that the assembly really likes which spins out into a 500-page book by one of the members. Um, there's, a, there's a bad moment where somebody puffs a book that's really dodgy, and he didn't read the whole thing first. And uh, so there's a discussion about the Trinity then. Um, but, 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 it, but I can't give you a substantive answer. It's something they, they discuss repeatedly. Now, now, having said all of that, Classic creedal phrases do appear in these seven different assembly texts, and I mentioned some of the important qualifying comments um, that the assembly makes um, y- regarding, uh, you know, the lack of confusion or composition or conversion. We, we're clearly hearing uh, echoes there. Um, so, so I I think I have a really sort of. Nerdy twenty-five minute paper on this subject that, that gets into the, the different uh, phrases that the assembly uses. Well, th- there's no clear trajectory in these seven different documents. Each one seems to pick up different um, concepts and phrases from from early church history, all of which are sort of mainstream creedal orthodox statements. Um, so, did that? Get anywhere close to your question?
2: Answers we
1: don't know. Don't know if there was discussion about that that phrase or not.
0: Now you're saying that phrase is now a very specific phrase. Yeah, so
1: the God the bear theotokos, did they debate
0: it? Did, did you say that and I missed that? Yeah. Right, I really missed that. <laughs> um. I don't recall seeing a debate about that at all, but I also think it would be commonplace for any member of the Westminster Assembly to affirm that language, from what I have read on their, on their, on their, their writings on the Trinity. That, that would be commonplace.
1: One more,
0: we have time for a question, maybe not an answer, but at least a question.
1: <laughs> David. Yeah, we've just come through Holy Week, most of us here are pastors, and we tend to focus on the work of Christ in this particular week with the cross and the resurrection. Give us some ways to go back home and focus on the person of Christ with regard to the cross and resurrection as we speak to our people.
0: So... So the cheap answer to your question is that the two lectures I'm hoping to give are, are all the piece and that this is the foundation for the next one. Um, I I think this, this sounds like marketing rather than a proper answer. Um, tomorrow morning's lecture will attempt to take what's been said about the person of Christ and show ways in which what we're asserting about Christ's person need to inform the way in which we preach his work. Um, so, so maybe that's one way of answering it. You can take different aspects of... Not different aspects. Uh, you, 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 there are different ways of considering the person of Christ and the necessity of... Christ as the incarnate God-man that can then inform different ways of preaching the gospel. Um, so, so rather than giving you a potted answer now, let me try and give you a, 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 a full, full, an answer in full growth tomorrow, full bloom, or something coming close to that. Yeah, I'll take that as an advertisement for tomorrow rather than something I can answer now.